about maybe a month and a half ago, Sarah and I had the privilege, and thank you to this church, that you um, blessed us by sending us to a conference at the North American Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention down around Atlanta uh, for church pastors and replanters as an opportunity just to be encouraged and trained up a little bit. It was an incredible time, uh, especially it was a good time with uh, my wife as well. It's the first opportunity she's ever had to go with me to be encouraged. Um, Just many different reasons for that. But we're sitting there at one point on that first day, and they are explaining to us the schedule for the, uh, the weekend. And there are a couple of breakout times, and there's a list of the breakouts. And one of the speakers um, who was there was a, um, a time management. Um, he's a Christian, but uh, he has written a, a book on time management for Christians. And he was doing a large group session on time management, but he was doing an intensive group on time management. And as we're looking at the list of things, that was the point when Sarah leaned over into my ear and said, you're going to that time management one, right? Because I know in in my life, there's so much that grabs my attention. Procrastination has always been um, a, a weak spot for me, all the way from finishing projects in school the night before and staying up late and whatever else, writing papers into the wee hours of the morning. Time management is one of my weaknesses, and maybe it's one of yours as well. But the truth of the matter is our life is filled with so many different things and responsibilities and even things that we want to do, the things that we have to do, that if we aren't careful to prioritize our lives, then what we'll find oftentimes is that the tail wags the dog. And the things that are maybe less um, important in our lives, but maybe easier for us to tackle or swallow, those are the things we knock out pretty quick. But those things that are meant to um, be the primary focus that would take a lot of energy, take a lot of effort, our lazy tendency is to push that off and push that off. I don't want to do that right now. And time management, self-help, it's a multi-million dollar uh, industry at this particular point, seeking to try to uh, encourage us and teach us how to be better versions of ourselves. And time management is a part of that. Just do a a Google search, get on YouTube, and you'll find bullet journal uh, videos out, you know, the wazoo. You'll find all kinds of time management skills available. One I watched a while back talked about the necessity of eating the frog, right? It's the first thing. You get up in the morning and you prioritize that thing that you just can't seem to stomach. It's the biggest, hardest, whatever task it is for the day, and you prioritize eating the frog. And that'll just set the rest of your day. But we all know how easy it is for things to slip. We start with the best intentions. We begin our year with lofty resolutions. And about halfway through January, they're out the window. Or stuffed under so many papers on our desk that already have dust on top of them that we forget them altogether. We start our quarters with big goals that we want to accomplish in the next 90 days. We wake up with the best of intentions for our day, and it isn't very long before that phone bleed leaps and we're trapped in just this wormhole of news and social media feeds and everything else, and there's so many things fighting for our attention that we are easily distracted. And in being distracted, we end up prioritizing the wrong things. When we prioritize the wrong things or our priorities get mixed up, our lives end up more stressed and strained than we ever intended them to be, right? 
right? That's when that tail begins to wag that dog. And inevitably, if you're like me, what you end up doing is you end up stealing time from other areas of your life because you've wasted times in the important areas of your life. And if you're like me, oftentimes the ones that suffer for that and where you're stealing the time from is your family because you've wasted time elsewhere. But unfortunately, that failure to prioritize what really matters rarely stops with our calendars, with our to-do lists. It oftentimes creeps into our spiritual lives as well. Maybe the first time to go out the window isn't your time with the family. The first thing that goes out the window is your time with God. That's why we need Haggai's message today. We need his exhortation that we must prioritize the presence of God because his presence changes everything. We're going to be looking at the entire book of Haggai, but I think the most powerful, probably the heart of the book, is found in Haggai chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? Haggai encourages, as he's inspired by the Lord, Be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you declares the Lord of hosts, according to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt. My spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the promise of your presence. We thank you for the power of your presence. And Lord, I know that I come this morning just to confess how easily I neglect your presence how easily I fail to prioritize your presence in my life. But nevertheless, I'm so grateful that you are faithful, faithful, even and especially when I am faithless, that you are steadfast and immovable, that you are the God who is always there. And though I might depart from you in your grace, Heavenly Father, you are always inviting me back. So I pray, Heavenly Father, for our time this morning. May we use it well. And I just pray that you would manifest your presence among us in a poignant, in a powerful way. That, Lord, we would hear the words of Haggai to our own hearts. Be strong. Work. And know that you are in our midst. And we need not fear what this world has to hold, be it today, tomorrow or 50 years ago, we're freed because of the life, the death, the resurrection, the ascension, the power, the presence of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. So in order for us to understand where we are in the prophets, if you'll bear with me a little bit, you've got to have a little bit of a history lesson. So if you're going to go to sleep, do it now, and you can wait until later, okay? So if you'll remember, we've talked about um, in this, as we've worked through these minor prophets, we have to understand the history of Israel. When David was king and on the throne, God blessed Israel in a powerful way, and they became a superpower at their time. When David died, Solomon reigned over that and even expanded it. But after Solomon's death, Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was wicked and evil, and he persecuted the people, and so the people rebelled against Solomon. 
And when they did, the nation of Israel split into two separate kingdoms. There was the northern kingdom of Israel that contained ten of the tribes of Israel, and there was the southern king of Judah, which had two of the tribes of Israel. Those two nations coexisted for hundreds of years with different kings, different temples at different places. All of the kings of the northern kingdom were evil all of the time. Some of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah were righteous some of the time. We talked about one of those righteous kings last week, Josiah, if you'll remember him. As they departed from the Lord, the Lord fulfilled his promises that he gave to the people in the first five books of the Old Testament, what's called the Pentateuch, where he gave them promises if they would remain faithful to the Lord, and he gave them consequences if they would turn from the Lord. They chose to turn from the Lord and to worship other gods alongside of the Lord, and there was idolatry and injustice rampant in the people of God. And so God raised up other nations to judge his people and expel them from the land. The first nation to fall was that northern kingdom, which was always wicked all of the time, when northern Israel was conquered by Assyria. The Assyrians attempted to conquer Judah, but they got right up to the gates of Jerusalem and they failed. Then they were overthrown by the Babylonians. The Babylonians came later and conquered Jerusalem, and all of the people of God were expelled from the land. This period in which the people had been plucked out of the promised land of God is called the exile. It lasted 70 years. All of the prophets that we have looked at up to this point prophesied and preached to the people before that exile. Before the fall of Jerusalem, okay? These next three, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, are the post-exilic prophets. They are the ones preaching to the people after they have been allowed to come back because the Persians overthrow the Babylonians, and they allowed all of the people that the Babylonians had scattered around the world to go home. And there had been a promise from the first Persian king that the people of Israel could come back to Jerusalem and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the city or rebuild the temple. They started rebuilding the temple and then their neighbors, especially up in Samaria, got scared. And so they caused all kinds of problems and they manipulated by the legal process and whatever else, the king, and he told the people of Israel to stop building the temple. That king is dead. And now Haggai, if you'll read through the book of Haggai, he is very particular about his dates. In fact, everything that Haggai says, we know down to the date was only within about two to three months from beginning to end of the book. And Haggai begins proclaiming to the people, you need to get back to work. You need to rebuild the temple. Really, this is a struggle in preaching all of these when we're trying to knock out one book in one sermon. <laughs> but Haggai is really three separate sermons. And so I'm going to try to summarize each section. The first one being in Haggai chapter 1, when Haggai really comes to the people and declares to them their need to get back to rebuilding the temple. And in that, he says that the people of God must consider their ways. And so as we must prioritize the presence of God because His presence changes everything, to do that, we must first and foremost heed the warning of Haggai in chapter 1, and we must consider our 
ways. Look in verse 1 of chapter, or chapter, chapter 1, verse 7. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Prior to that, in verse 5, now therefore that says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so only to put them into a bag with holes. See, there's a problem in the nation of Israel. The problem is that despite having a good reason, a declaration from the king to stop, the people of God have not rebuilt the temple. We're some two decades after they got back into the land. And they are prioritizing themselves, their own lives, their own wants, their own security. These people say, verse 2, it is not yet time to rebuild the house of the Lord. And God asks them, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while my house lies in ruins? Here's the thing, that paneled houses doesn't necessarily mean that they are building themselves these lavish homes. These were very poor people who were sent back to rebuild their lives. So they are focusing on their security. They are focusing on trying to rebuild their lives. They're focusing on planting their crops and raising their, their, their cattle and their sheep and their herds. They're attempting to reestablish their lives in the land without God. So we have to understand the significance of the temple. The temple was the place where in a very special way, we understand God is omnipresent, which means that there is nowhere that God does not exist. There is nowhere in the universe or outside of the universe where God does not exist. God is everywhere all of the time. But God chose in his providence, because he is a God who desires to relate to his people, to create a space where he would, in a special way, manifest his presence and dwell among his people. And it would be a place that his people would be able to come and worship him and experience his presence among them. We see that first in Genesis chapters 2 and 3 in the Garden of Eden. That that is the place where God would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cool of the day. After they were expelled from the garden and there was the history and God reclaimed his people and rescued them and redeemed them by his grace, they established the tabernacle, which was a tent. And wherever the tent went and they put the Ark of the Covenant in it, the manifest presence of God would descend upon that tabernacle and in that tabernacle, God's presence would dwell. Later under Solomon, they built the temple and the temple became the place where God's presence would dwell. So to neglect rebuilding the temple is to neglect the presence of God. To neglect the presence of God is to neglect the person of God. And again, these people seemed to have had really good reasons for going about their lives the way that they were. They needed to establish their lives. They weren't necessarily trying to build fancy homes for themselves while God's temple lies in ruins. They were just merely trying to rebuild their lives. They were just merely trying to pursue what they needed to survive. And yet, the very clear problem that we read in verses 5 and 6 
is that everything that they are attempting to do is falling flat. They're planting crops and nothing is growing. They're making money and it seems like as soon as they make money and they put it in their pocket, there's a hole in the pocket and the money is gone. Nothing seems to be thriving. Nothing seems to be surviving. Nothing seems to be working because their priorities are out of whack. Their priorities are upside down. And God will not allow His people to live comfortably where they are while they are neglecting Him. And so He pursues them by refusing to bring about the prosperity and the life that they need. To draw them to Himself, and He does it specifically by sending His messenger to exhort His people to check their priorities. And so Haggai comes to the people and he proclaims that it is time to rebuild the temple. And what is beautiful about the book of Haggai is that after 70 years in exile, we see a transformation having taken place in the hearts of the people. Because when you get to verse 12 and following, you find out that what the people of the Lord do, they obey. They fear the name of the Lord and they respond in faith and they respond in obedience. Prior to the exile, you'll remember that there were several prophets that they would come, almost all of the prophets would come and they would preach to the people, they would preach to the king and they were neglected. They were flat out rejected. Look back if you want, if you ever, you can write this down, Amos chapter 7. Amaziah, a representative of the king of Israel, came to Amos and said, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there and prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is the temple of the kingdom. The people rejected the prophets. The king rejected the prophets. The priests rejected the prophets. Everybody rejected the word of God. Until here, when Zerubbabel the governor and Joshua the high priest and the people all hear the voice of the Lord, fear the Lord, and obey the Lord. And so they respond in obedience. They exercise their faith in who God is by being obedient to the Lord. And in being obedient to the Lord, in hearing His voice, in heeding His voice, in obeying His voice, they then choose to move deeper into fellowship with God. Our faith never or should not stop by merely hearing the word of the Lord. Full faith is hearing the word of the Lord, believing it to be true in my heart, and obeying it in my life. There are plenty of people who hear the word of the Lord, and maybe they believe the word of their Lord, but the truth of the matter is their lives are not transformed by what they claim they believe. And there is a disconnect between my heart and my hands. And that's why James proclaims to his people that faith without works is dead. We can't see our faith unless our faith is exercised in our lives. And so what we see here in the obedience of the people is the exercise of their faith. And in exercising their faith and being obedient, they move deeper into fellowship with God. And in doing so, they find the Lord to in fact be faithful as he proclaims to them at the end of chapter 1, I am with you, declares the Lord, verse 13. They obeyed the voice of the Lord, 
in verse 12. They feared the Lord in verse 12. And in verse 13 of chapter 1, they hear the promise of the Lord. I am with you. God proves himself faithful. It's not a matter of whether or not God went anywhere. In our disobedience, in our lack of faith, we divert from and distance ourselves from God. But as we'll see next week in Zechariah, we hear the promise of God that if we are faithful to pursue him, he is faithful to respond to us. God is the God who chooses to relate to his people, to live in relationship with us. And the question is never whether or not God wants that. The question is always, do we? And when we hear the word of the Lord and we hear the encouragement of the Lord, the answer or the question is, will we respond like the people before the exile, like the people who told Amos to shut up and go away? Or will we in our hearts be stirred up by God's grace and by his presence? Will we surrender and repent? Will we return to the Lord? So we must prioritize our lives by prioritizing the presence of God in our lives, by pursuing Him. And here's the good news for the New Testament church. We don't have to go to a temple to experience the presence of God because the promise of Jesus Christ that we read earlier out of Matthew chapter 28 is, I am with you, declares Jesus Christ. And that the Spirit indwells all of those who are saved by Jesus Christ, who have put their faith and their trust in Him. And so there is nowhere that God is not with us. The question is, are we choosing to acknowledge that in our lives? Every moment of every day. It doesn't matter if you have your quiet time at 4.30 in the morning or 11.30 at night. Because I'll promise you one thing. 30 minutes in the morning or 30 minutes of the night won't really matter as much as if you were to just give three seconds of every minute of every day. Because there is no moment in your life when he's not there. So yes, there should be a time when we should prioritize seeking him in his word and setting aside specific time that we can spend with him. But the truth of the matter is, we need to be people who learn to recognize the presence of God in our lives every moment of every day. Because that is where he is. But we must not only consider our ways, we must consider the value of God. As the people reject or turn from building the temple, they're turning from the Lord and they're misunderstanding the value of the Lord as they pursue the wants and needs of their own lives over the presence of God. And so when you get into chapter 2, leading up to the verses that we read earlier, verses five, 4 and 5 of chapter 2, which I really believe is the heart of Haggai, you find that they respond in obedience, they begin building the temple, And God comes to the people in verse 3 and he says, hey, who is around that saw the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians and built by Solomon? And as you look at what Solomon built, and as you look at what everyone is giving their hearts and their lives and their efforts to build right now, what do you think? And if you go and read Ezra, which was a, which was it was a priest at the time, and you can read the book of Ezra, and they are um, ministering at the same time, and Ezra actually records the people. And as they're getting ready to lay the foundation of the temple and they're building it, there's a point in there when everybody who had seen the glory of the, of the old temple, standing alongside at the dedication of it with the new people, the new people are all excited because we've got it started and the temple is coming, and all of the old folks are weeping 
because it's so pathetic in comparison to what used to be. And it's so much of a wailing and everything else that they can't tell the difference between the cries of lamentation, the cries of disappointment, and the cries of praise. And so God asks them, when you look at what you've built, what do you think? And what they see is unimpressive. They're not overwhelmed by what stands in front of them. Which is why God encourages them to be strong. Don't be discouraged by what you see. Because what you see isn't all that there is. And God goes on in the end of this to declare that he will be with them. You see, what makes the temple valuable isn't the fact that it was coated in gold isn't the fact that the instruments inside were made of silver and gold. What made the temple beautiful was that God was there. What made the temple special and unique in all of the world was that was the one place in all of the universe that God determined to manifest His presence. That's what made it irreplaceable. That's what made it invaluable. That is what made it priceless. And so he encourages the people to understand and reevaluate their priorities, to reevaluate their understanding of what is valuable and what matters, not based on what they see, not based on what this world values, but instead what is of eternal significance. And isn't it just like God? to take the unimpressive and infuse it with infinite value? Isn't it just like God to take the weak and the frail, to take the ugly and the outcast, and use that one by infusing them with His grace to glorify His name? It happens again and again throughout the Old Testament. One of my favorite passages of Scripture is out of Genesis when you're looking at, at Rachel and Tamar. Is that right? The sisters who marry Jacob. Leah and, and Leah and Rachel. And Jacob loves Rachel because she's beautiful. But he gets Leah and she's ugly. That's just, that's the retranslation of that passage of Scripture. Her eyes were weak. It means she's ugly. Nobody wanted her. But it's Leah, the ugly and the unwanted one, that gives birth to Judah, whose great-great-great-grandson was David, whose even greater grandson was Jesus Christ. God always loves to take what you and I would cast aside that we can't see anything beautiful or impressive about and infuse it with his presence and his power and his glory. And that's what Christ has done in taking a whole bunch of ugly, unimpressive, backwards, sinful, wayward, such as were some of you people and transform them into his bride, the church of Jesus Christ. And so we must be people who consider God's value 
and not what the world values. See, what's valuable here is not the building that is being built. It's who the building is being built for. And our world has a standard of success, especially in the church world, that we have bought into for 30-something years. Three decades that says the megachurch is the successful church. The megachurch is the way to go. Building is in budgets and butts in seats. That's what we need to prioritize. And when we build some massive monument on this site that is beautiful and then allows a whole bunch of people to fill it, that's when we will have arrived. And we can say all day long with our mouths that we would much rather have a shack filled with the presence of God than a 30,000-seat beautiful sanctuary without Him all day long. But the question is, do our hearts really agree with that and do our conversations reflect it? Or is our goal some holy house on a hill that everybody drives by and says, you know what, that's real impressive. That's real beautiful. That's real special. They've spent millions of dollars on a space that gets used two hours every single week. It's not to say that there's anything wrong with that. But the question is, is God there? Because it doesn't matter how big it gets. If God's presence isn't there, it's worthless. Because buildings are going to come crumbling down. Budgets are going to fall apart. It's God who is eternal and everlasting. And so we must pursue the Lord and prioritize His presence. Because the silver and the gold belong to God. And if we want to pursue Him, we'll let Him build what He wants here and anywhere else. And be content with that. And pursue Him above silver and gold, every single time that we come together. By giving all of ourselves to this place, not just to this place, but to this people, in seeking God's presence, in devoting ourselves to His Word, in prayer and in ministry and in sacrifice with one another, prioritizing the Lord because the Lord is far more valuable than silver or gold or budgets or buildings or butts and seats. Numbers and things that the world looks at as success. We must set our hearts on God's infinite value rather than on the things of this world. But finally, we must consider God's promises. The end of chapter 2 has this really kind of weird if you, um, parable that Haggai comes to the priests with. And in it, he asks them this question. Hey, so here's the thing. If, someone, if there's a priest and he's holding a, a sacrifice which is holy to the Lord in, the garment, in his garments, he's carrying it around, and he goes and he puts it down, and if someone comes into contact with him, does that person then become holy because, or does his garment even become holy because it touched something that was holy? And the priest's response is, based on the law, No. And then Haggai says, okay, so here's the thing. If somebody goes and touches a dead body and they become unclean, and then that person touches somebody else and touches this and touches that, do those people become unclean? And the answer according to the law is yes. And that seems kind of weird. But here's basically what Haggai is, is showing. He is showing the utter hopelessness of the people without God. Because here's the thing. What's sinful is contagious. Contagious. 
What's holy is not. Maybe it's too soon, but think about this, right? We got viruses. There's a big one. Still kind of creeping around. That virus is contagious. And if somebody has that virus and they enter into your presence and they breathe on you and whatever else, guess what happens? You can get the virus. And it can affect you because it is contagious. But if you've had the vaccine and the vaccine is in your body and it is giving you what you need in order to protect it and you go into the presence of somebody else and you breathe upon that person, does your vaccine cross over to them? Does your protection go to them? No. So which one's better suited to spread? The, vac- or the virus, not the vaccine. And the same is true spiritually in the world. What is positioned to spread and what is easy to spread is sin instead of holiness. And so God says, here's the situation. These people are coated in their sin and everything that they are touching is contaminated by their sin, even the temple that they are building for me. They're hopeless, except that God says in the end, from this day on, I will bless you. You see, here's the thing that we have to understand. It's really easy to take the book of Haggai and turn it into some building campaign. If we build it, God will bless us. But that's not actually what God is saying. God is saying, prioritize my presence. I will take pleasure in the temple. And in my presence, you will experience blessing. Why? Because I'm getting glory. God tells them at the beginning in Haggai chapter 1 that they are to build the temple. Why? So that the Lord may look upon it and have pleasure in it. Their goal is not to get things for themselves. Their goal is to glorify God. God's message is glorify me and I will bless you. Glorify me and I will bless you. It's not a tit-for-tat relationship though. It is a promise of the everlasting God. Why is it that sacrifice or that that substitutionary sacrifices please the Lord. It's because God chooses to let them please himself. We can do all the right things all day long, but unless God in his grace receives what we give him, we have no hope. And we can dance around and cut ourselves and do all the things that religion would tell us to do, beat ourselves and weep and wail and jump and scream and everything else, and guess what? None of that is impressive to God. It's only by his grace that he receives anything that we give. And it's God's grace that he chooses now to lavish on the people who have heard his word, heeded his word, returned to himself, and he lavishes his grace upon them. The greatest way that we see that is in what happens at the end of the book of Haggai. Throughout this book, this man named Zerubbabel is referred to as the governor. Because at this particular point, there is no kingdom. And he is under the authority of the Persians. But this man, Zerubbabel, is not just any governor. He's the heir of the throne of Judah. A great, 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 great grandson of David. He is, in this position, the king. Here's the thing. His grandfather was the king at the time of the exile, who was wicked. And God said to that king, I am going to take the ring of power from your finger and you and your your heirs will not sit on this throne because of your wickedness. 
But here we see God lavish His grace on the grandson who comes back. On the grandson who hears the Word of the Lord, who heeds the Word of the Lord, who is stirred up by the Spirit of God, who leads the people into the presence of God, who leads the people to prioritize God. We find out at the very end of this book that God says, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a ring of power. For I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. God restores His grace and pours it out upon the king and repours it out upon the people as He takes up residence with them and His presence is restored. And it's the great-great-great-great-grandson of Zerubbabel who was the manifest presence of God. See, like we said earlier, we live in a day and a time when we don't have to come to this place to do ministry. We don't have to come to this place to worship God. We don't have to come to this place to experience God. And the reason for that is because Jesus Christ Himself said He is the new temple. He says, tear down this temple and in three days it will rise again and I will rebuild it. Because the presence of God is not in a place, it's in a person now. And that person is Jesus Christ, who is the God incarnate, who came and walked among us, who dwelt among His people, who loved them and served them and ministered to them and lived a perfect right life of righteousness, manifesting God's presence, manifesting God's grace, manifesting God's mercy, manifesting God's power as He healed the lame and raised the dead and set the captive free and cast out demons. And He restored all of these things as He came into the presence. And wherever Christ was, the kingdom of God was. And wherever Christ is, the kingdom of God is. And the promise of Jesus Christ is that all of those who have turned from themselves and trusted in Him will be indwelt by His Spirit such that wherever a child of God is, is where God is. And so we can hunger to be together. Because as the Christ in me gathers together with the Christ in you, and we recognize the Christ in one another, and we glorify the Lord, wherever we are becomes the place where God dwells. Which is why you see the New Testament church, long before they had a building, they came together in one another's homes, day by day by day. Why? Because they weren't tied to a physical location, they were tied to one another. Because that's where the presence of God is. And that's what God promises. And when you finally get to 1 Peter, you find out God is building a temple, but that temple is made up of bricks that are living stones. Which is why when you get to the end of Revelation and John talks about the vision that he sees, he hears the angel say, Behold, the bride of Christ. And he hears this promise of the bride is coming. Who's the bride of Christ? We are. When he looks, what does he see? A city. He hears the bride. He sees a city. Why? Because God is building us together. 
Our eternal hope and eternal home is a place with one another, not just a place. We are the eternal temple of God. We are the city that God is building. We, as the people of God who are in Christ, receive his presence and his promise that he will be with us today and tomorrow and for eternity as he takes up dwelling in that city that comes out of the clouds, which is a city built by the hands of the Holy Spirit himself, made up of you and me, living stones, and everyone who has put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so God promises his presence. The question is, brother, sister, friend, are you prioritizing the promise of God or presence of God? Because that's what changes everything. Have you received Christ as your Lord and Savior today? Can you say that Christ dwells in me? If not, please. Receive the grace and the mercy that comes by the good news that Jesus has done everything necessary for you to be forgiven of your sins and receive this eternal promise of everlasting life. God's promise to the people is from this day forward, I will be with you and I will bless you, and I will restore you. The promise of God in Jesus Christ is that when we receive him as our Lord and Savior, our eternity is transformed by his presence. Child of God, how can you prioritize God's presence? How can you seek the Lord today and this week? Because I promise you, if you seek him, you will find him. And he will find you. And there is nothing more exciting, more worthwhile than living in the presence of God. Not after you die, though that is there. But right now, 